With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hey everyone, it's James Crepia from the Oregonian and Oregon Live, bringing you another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. As we wrap up the 2020-21 athletics year for Ducks sports, and obviously what the year was was highly unusual for everybody. As we all know, we're not going to revisit every single aspect of why it was so bizarre and unusual and challenging, because it was all those things for everybody, uh, the entire world, the entire country. Uh, the entire Pac-12, the entire state, you name it. Everybody had unprecedented uh, levels of challenges, issues, difficulties. And having said that, you know, to a large extent, there was, even with those challenges, a degree of a somewhat level playing field uh, in that everybody was dealing with it in some way, shape, or form. And in other ways, obviously, uh, not so much a level playing field when it came to the levels of protocols, restrictions, uh, fan attendance, any number of things that go around sport that made things at times even more challenging for Oregon specifically uh, and Oregon State for that matter. Uh, But again, the year is complete. And with that in mind, we take a look back on the year that was and outside of the obvious uh, challenges that we mentioned, in terms of performance and what was accomplished on the field of play or court or what have you, really a remarkable year for duck sports. Truly, uh, you know, they talk about and aspire for what they, you know, the, the branding in terms of inside the department, what they go for is broad based excellence, as they speak of. And it's something to certainly sh- shoot for and aspire for. There's no way around it. They achieved it this year. Oregon Athletics certainly achieved a large scale of broad-based excellence this year. They really lived up to their goals and their mantra as a, as a department. Now, again, this doesn't mean that did they win national championships and everything. Well, no, of course not. But did they reach the postseason in many, many sports? And so much so, and to such a degree that depending on which sports you include, Oregon is among a very finite group of schools to send any number of their top team sports specifically. We'll get into the individual sports as well. But their team sports to the postseason. When you want to include 
football for certainly to a bowl game, if not a New Year's Six game. And if you whittle it down to the New Year's Six, obviously you're only going to get the 12 teams. But if you make it as broad as bowl games, men's and women's basketball to the NCAA tournaments, baseball and softball to the NCAA tournaments, and women's volleyball to the NCAA tournaments, when you start including four and five and six of the top team sports and saying that they all made it to the postseason, and in many cases, well, football obviously only has the one tier other than if you're in the playoff, but for basketball, both men's and women's basketball, to make it to the Sweet 16, for baseball to host a regional, softball to play in a regional, women's volleyball to make it to a Sweet 16, you start trimming down the number of schools who could say some of these same things. And again, depending on which sports you include, ultimately, Oregon, Alabama, and Texas are three of the only schools that can say, again, depending on exactly the right combination that you come up with, by one measure it's Oregon and Texas, by another measure it's Oregon and Alabama, either which way, Tremendous years to be in a a rarefied air like that when as a department, nationally speaking, comparatively speaking, Oregon's athletic department is not vast by way of number of sports compared to a Cal or Stanford or Texas or Ohio State or schools and many of the Big Ten schools that sponsor 20 and 30 some odd sports. Oregon's athletic department is very, very good on the field of play. They're various teams, but it does not sponsor 25 and 30 sports. It's just not part of the deal. So to have the sports that they do sponsor, many of them achieve at such high levels this year, not just commendable uh, and praiseworthy, but like I say, in doing a end-of-year kind of recap, a lot of positivity to go over from a again, an accomplishment-on-the-field-to-play standpoint. Doesn't mean everything was perfect. Doesn't mean that they have all these banners and championships. I mean, obviously, some of them, there are Pac-12 titles to go around. But it does mean that in terms of achieving, as a collective, a level of very widespread success, Oregon did so. Starting, obviously, going back to the fall and football season and the Ducks winning the Pac-12 title. And we're not going to go back through all the circumstances and divisions and who did what and who got to play who. and all. We know how it went down at this point. They repeated as Pac-12 champions. They played in a second New Year's Six Bowl in back-to-back years and obviously are well-positioned now to make a run at it again. A lot of excitement to be had there. In the winter sports, when you get into men's and women's basketball in particular, a men's basketball team that certainly had its challenges in January, first really starting the season without Will Richardson, and then LJ Figueroa missing the initial game until the NCAA waiver process was hashed out. Then you have injuries. Then you have a COVID pause. The team comes together and catches fire in February and March to close out the season as one of the hottest teams in the country, certainly the hottest team in the Pac-12, to close out and beat UCLA at home 
to recapture first place and then clinch back-to-back Pac-12 regular season titles with a win over Oregon State. What a way to end the year. And okay, they make a two-game appearance in Las Vegas for the Pac-12 tournament and then head off to the NCAA tournament where, yeah, unfortunately, uh, they were the beneficiary, the only beneficiary in the entire NCAA tournament where their opening round opponent, VCU, had to forfeit a game. And that part of it stung. It's really stung for VCU, but really, quite honestly, kind of it, it stung for the Ducks too. I mean, they they went there to play. Now, all right, yeah, they do get to advance. They play Iowa in round two, and of course, they win to advance to the Sweet Sixteen. And again, think about where that team was in January or early February, and how things were looking, and how the Pac-12 was looking, and to think that Dana Altman and company could get back to the Sweet Sixteen. Tremendous accomplishment, and obviously an incredible season for not just the team as a whole as a collective, but for Chris Duarte to take off and have the year that he had to become an All-American, to win the Jerry West Award as the top shooting guard in the country, well-deserved, uh, as a he certainly literally was the best shooting guard in the country in terms of actual shooting, uh, <laughs> whether you want to include shooting guards, point guards, uh, and really just about any wing you could come up with. He had an incredible year. And, of course, wasn't alone in that regard. He carried them for the biggest swath of the season. But Eugene Omarui playing superb at times, especially down the stretch, uh, improving his three-point shooting, his passing, and has now put himself in a position to where he is a legitimate draft prospect as either a late second round, priority free agent, G League sort of player, he improved his career potential enormously this past season. And if it has to start outside of the NBA initially, well, so be it. But he has certainly shown that he is a much more well-rounded player after this past season than he was prior to coming to Oregon. Then L.J. Figueroa stepping up big late in the year. Obviously, it ends on a sour note for him uh, in the loss to USC in the Sweet 16, but otherwise had certainly come up so so clutch so many times down the stretch to help Oregon repeat his, again as conference champs. He's off already playing professionally in the Dominican Republic, but also going through the draft process, uh, and we'll see if he ends up getting some other professional opportunities here in the months ahead. And Will Richardson and the way he closed the season in terms of, all right, those are the players who close out, help them win, but they're all moving on. Richardson, one of the key, if not the biggest key, returning player for this squad into next season. And obviously already this offseason we've seen numerous transfers coming in from graduate transfers, junior college transfers, and the like, and the one-time transfer rule uh, being Certainly very benef- you know, beneficial for the Ducks in terms of reshaping their roster for next year. This team, depending on who you look at from uh, those who cover the sport nationally for men's college basketball, again, offseason starts, a couple of players choose to move on, a couple of players choose to transfer and go elsewhere, and there is uh, knee-jerk reactions and um, pontifications that things are going to be incredibly challenging and difficult and what a roster rebuild and oh boy here we go and then in a matter of weeks uh, Dana Altman and his staff 
don't just assemble a roster. They assemble a roster that includes many of the top players who were available to transfer in the portal this offseason. And the Ducks are now, again, depending on who you go by and the various different uh, college basketball national reporters who uh, cover the sport on such a wide scale, many of them have the Ducks in their preseason top 10 at this point. And then you look to and consider what the schedule is supposed to include, and we'll see more definitively here again over the summer and into the fall as we get closer to the season what the final schedule ends up being in terms of non-conference. But there are some premier games on Oregon's schedule, many of them that are supposed to be played at home. And Oregon, Michigan, Oregon, Baylor, these are humongous games. So again, a lot to be excited for, obviously, going forward, uh, and certainly as to what the fall could present by way of uh, marquee non-conference games in particular, could be really spectacular. Uh, this team is, again, certainly shaping up to be every bit as competitive as it has been the last several seasons, but a tremendous job already, uh, and again, worthy of praise uh, for Dana Altman and his staff in terms of already reshaping this roster going forward, but looking back at what they were able to accomplish this year, I'm not sure enough can really be said. Uh, and enough praise can be had for a team who, like I say, at various different points, yeah, were they expected to have a good year entering the year? Yeah, of course. In the preseason, they were picked third. It wasn't like they were picked ninth. They were expected to have a good year. They were expected to make the NCAA tournament. But when things did not get off to the easiest of starts, and then in January when there's pauses and there's players absent and there's injuries, minor, but injuries, and then obviously in Folly Dante going down in December, no less, presented major challenges, major obstacles to trying to repeat as Pac-12 champs. But they did. And again, that speaks to just the players uh, and the medal that they showed throughout the course of the season, and especially in the basketball season. Football and basketball season, why was it different even compared to the spring sports? Because... Those teams didn't get a chance to play in front of anybody during the course of the regular season. Even in the NCAA tournament, attendance was extremely limited. So when you don't have that element, that's a pretty sanitized environment. Then you bring into it also that the protocols at the time called for a level of testing and uh, really kind of isolation lifestyle that as players mentioned throughout the course of the year, as coaches mentioned throughout the course of the year, not just at Oregon, everywhere. It wasn't just a challenge. It wasn't just, oh, it's difficult. It wasn't real fun. So for the, like I say, for football to repeat as champs under those conditions, for men's basketball to repeat as regular season champs, under those conditions, and for women's basketball to have a strong start to the year, have things go awry against better competition, have Tahina Pow Pow go down to a foot injury, and things look downright dire by the end of the regular season, including in the Pac-12 tournament, where at that point, 
it looked like they were going to be a one-and-done team in the NCAA tournament, No matter, almost no matter who they were going to play. Okay, they got a favorable draw, sure. But fine, second round, that they were going to be a one-weekend team. And instead, to manage to reinvent themselves stylistically in the just about two-week span from the Pac-12 tournament to the NCAA tournament and to catch, all right, yeah, it's two games, but it's two games that change the entire outlook and how this team and how this season will be viewed. This was a Sweet 16 team. In December, probably would have thought that it would be a Sweet 16 team. In January and February, there was very little reason to believe that this was a Sweet 16 team. And in early March, there was no way that this was going to be a Sweet 16 team. This was a team that, quite honestly had fallen very far in the polls to the point where I'm I'm not an AP poll voter for women's basketball. I am for men's basketball. But if I were on the women's side, I wouldn't have had them ranked in the top 25 because of the way they had closed out and, and based on Pow Pow's injury in particular, what they were doing on the court was not reflective of a top 25 team at the time. But they made the adjustments, big ones at that stylistically, to make a run in the NCAA tournament where, yeah, all right, the run was two games. We understand. Don't overstate it. But it's no less significant to be able to achieve that when one of your more dynamic players and leading scorers is out. And then, obviously, when they lose in the Sweet 16 to a very, very good Louisville team, injuries also continue to pile up in the course of that game. So they were already presented with enough challenges in the first place. And then it just compounded and uh, really built on itself from there. Having said that, the season was a Sweet 16 season. Did it go off without a hitch and not have some monumental detours along the way? Oh, yeah, obviously. It had some, some major hurdles. Having said that, a team who still managed to reach the Sweet 16, despite all those things, takes nothing away from the season. Uh, and the end accomplishment. But they had as many challenges in terms of from a personnel standpoint. They were right on up there. Uh, and, and stylistic standpoint, when you consider how the roster was being reshaped from the year before and what they lost from the year before, and then consider all the other factors, And then when you're trying to integrate in five freshmen, when really there was no means by which to do that very easily or under any kind of semblance of normal conditions, not just because of testing and protocols, but because, again, of the isolated kind of life that players had to live at home and on the road, that team dinners weren't you know, building team chemistry was a huge challenge for everybody, yes, but especially so for teams who were really young, who were trying to incorporate more young, new players into the lineup. Yeah, 
Kelly Graves and his staff signed up for that. They knew that that was going to be part and parcel to what they were doing in this season. They didn't know they'd be doing it under the conditions that they did it under. That's for sure. And another team that, like we talked about with the men's basketball team, another roster that obviously has gone through a significant amount of turnover this offseason. Obviously, having said that, yes, did they lose a lot? Absolutely. No question about it. They lost significant shooters, significant wings, guards, ball handlers, a major playmaker in Taylor Chavez, who when she's at her best, I still would say was the best defender on the team. When Jazz Shelley is in the role that she was playing a year ago, she's one of the better three-point shooters, not just on that roster, but in the country even, among younger players in particular. And Taylor Michael came in as one of the top shooters, and obviously at times when she was when she was at her best, she was incredible as a three-point shooter. And then obviously she also had about a month-long span where she didn't shoot very well at all. They lose three significant players in that regard, to say nothing of Aaron Boley and Lydia Giomi graduating and completing their eligibility. Well, completing their eligibility that they wish to use in, in the traditional senior sense. They did have the option to come back uh, and play college basketball if they chosen to do so, but they've chosen to move on. That is a lot to lose. Having said that, though, do they also add a lot? Not just from their two freshman signees, but from the transfers that they have added already and may continue to do so over the course of the summer? Yeah. And ultimately, this was always going to be a team that if things were under a more normal circumstance this past season, I think this was going to be a three-point shooting team that over the course of the season began to integrate in its bigs more. All right, in the end, because of lack of other choice, they had to go through the bigs rather than through the guards. Okay. I think that this team was probably going to be driven through its bigs in 2021-22 regardless because Niar Sopley and Sedona Prince are both entering their redshirt junior seasons and they weren't draft eligible this past year. So with a team that was going to have those two bigs back and has a massive size advantage against most competition that they're going to see, certainly during the course of the regular season and even for a large swath of the postseason potentially, you would be foolish not to take advantage of when you have players of that caliber and that size uh, and certainly their skill sets. So I think they were going to be geared through the forwards this season no matter what even had the guards who transferred not transferred, I think they would have been a more big-centric team in the first place. Perhaps it would have been a bit more balanced had they retained more of their shooters. Having said that, they are adding some shooters in from the transfers who they've added already. So I do think that this will look stylistically 
somewhere between how they ended last year in the tournament and what they were doing in the Sabrina Ruthie era. I don't think they'll be as wide open and as high scoring and dynamic as they were then, not just because obviously Sabrina was a generational and all time talent and Ruthie for her, for her, her efforts often get, I'm going to say overlooked, but I think statistically speaking, some of them do in terms of just her unbelievable level of efficiency inside the paint uh, and how that pick and roll with them was able to flourish and, and achieve at the level that they did. I don't know if you'll see as wide open and as pick-and-roll-centric an offense necessarily as you saw with them because I still don't know if they have the ball-handling point guard necessarily to do that, either with Pow Pow or anybody else. In the same way, it doesn't mean they can't do it in run a pick and roll. It means that again, when you're trying to when when fans' uh, comparison from most recent history is arguably the best to ever do it, that's an awfully lofty standard to try and live up to. So I think that there could be a little bit of a hybrid like approach to having to go through the bigs as much as they did to end last season and the heavy three-point shooting, heavy outside emphasis, and also, yeah, by the way, pick and roll that they were doing in years past. It will be interesting uh, and certainly something we look forward to to chronicling and seeing how it goes uh, throughout the course of next season. But many months away from that, uh, at this point as we get into the summer, uh, players who are already taking part, uh, many of the this past season freshmen, now sophomores, who will, who have taken part in the three-on-three uh, USA Basketball event, uh, where they finished in the semifinals. Uh, Sedona Prince taking part with the Team USA Americup team. Tina Pow Pow with the Under-19 national team. So still lots to follow. And like I say, I don't think that they're done adding to the roster yet either. But a season where, for as many hurdles and obstacles and challenges as that team faced, a season that still ends in the Sweet 16. Much to be taken in a positive light from that, even, yes, when there was challenges along the way, and even, yes, when there were departures at the end of the year. Now to some of the other traditionally what would be fall sports that ended up getting played in the spring, but don't want to overlook them because, again, they did achieve uh, some remarkable things throughout the course of the year. First, I want to mention soccer because I'd be remiss if I didn't. And I know certainly we don't cover them on a on a day to day to day basis uh, because I'm I'm <laughs> I only have two hands and can only be in one place at a time, quite honestly. But when they played this spring, getting the win over Stanford for the first time in program history, and obviously one that through the lens of by the time you get to the end of the season does look a little bit different, uh, certainly than it did at the time. Having said that, historic in nature doesn't change that fact at all doesn't change the fact that Stanford had been as dominant as they were in the Pac-12 for as many years as they were before having a setback season this year, uh, not just with the loss to Oregon, but season as a whole. But again, at the time, a massive accomplishment. 
and a year under a first-year coach and a first-year coach in Graham Abel has to deal with it under, again, the conditions that were a 6-5-5 and season and 4-4-3 and in the Pac-12 where, had again, you want to say if things were different. Well, everybody could say if things were different, if circumstances were different. They weren't okay. They didn't end up making the postseason, but they were very much in the conversation to do so. Very much so. So a a year that doesn't necessarily end in the NCAA tournament, but don't let that be the only way that you view and assess a scale of success of that team and that program because they did achieve some things this past season, to be clear. And especially, again, under the circumstances, great, to be honest. Uh, and if, if it weren't, they wouldn't have one of their assistants get hired as a head coach this offseason. So would be remiss if I didn't mention them. So, again, Oregon women's soccer had a good year under the conditions especially uh, and certainly has a lot to look forward to going forward. Women's volleyball going 15-5 and on the year, 14-4 and in Pac-12 play, picking up some very nice wins against ranked opponents, in particular rallying from down two sets to none against Washington, on March 7th, when they had lost and gotten swept 3-0 in their first meeting of the weekend on March 5th, get down 2-0 on March 7th, and to rally from down 2-0 to win three sets to two to split the weekend, that became the first of what was five straight wins. Yeah, were they expected to win the subsequent games? Yes, but the first of five straight and and uh, a very nice end to the regular season. And again, a team that makes it to the Sweet 16 round uh, before losing to Purdue. And another team that was going through roster turnover, significant roster turnover, and managed to do so, again, under the conditions and all the like, a successful season by any objective measure. Now we get to the more traditional spring sports with baseball and softball with softball a team that had we know what happened in 19 the massive amount of roster turnover the shakeups etc in 20 had started to gain some momentum in non-conference play obviously had a very nice record albeit against not the most challenging of schedules but needed to have a less challenging non-conference schedule in 20 in order to build players' confidence up, in order to discern roles and who was going to play in what capacity in a roster that was still really coming together in a lot of ways. The players were there in 19, sure, but there were still new players coming in in 20, many of the transfers who came in. Everything gets hit with a pause. The whole season gets shut down after a 22-2 and start. So expectations were there for this season. They were a ranked team the whole time. I thought along the way that some of the polls got a little bit ahead of themselves by putting Oregon as high as number two at one point. Yeah, they, had a, they, they split early non-conference games with UCLA, so it legitimized that they were certainly going to be a competitive team. But because of the rest of their non-conference schedule not being all that great by way of caliber of competition, strength of schedule, and the like, 
much of it through no choice of Oregon's. It wasn't like Missy Lombardi was passing up on tens of options of premier opponents. There were finite games to be had in non-conference play for everybody in the Pac-12 this year. If you look at everyone in the league, basically outside of Arizona and Arizona State, I think maybe UCLA played uh, one of the better opponents in non-conference, but especially Oregon, Oregon State, Washington softball teams, it's harder in the Pacific Northwest to have played home non-conference games in February and March. They rarely do it under normal circumstances, obviously due to the threat of weather, and they don't know if they're going to be able to play. So why schedule the games? And opponents are going to be unwilling to do it because they don't want to run the risk of traveling and not getting games in. They don't want to do that in a normal circumstance. In a year where the schedules are even more limited, few teams wanted to take on the risk. Then you present in the financial challenges. Then you present in the, again, testing protocols, restrictions, requirements, and every which other facet. And there were just finite options by way of non-conference teams for Oregon to play this past year. Now, we mention all that because, obviously, it came home to impact them in a big way on Selection Sunday when the NCAA tournament field Gets there. Now, we'll get through a part of the season before we do. Overall, I thought a successful season. Was it a banner year? No, of course not. But they end up finishing third in the Pac-12. Yes, they needed some help the final weekend in that, you know, Arizona and Arizona State uh, and tiebreakers and other things had to come into play. But a 14-10 and record in Pac-12 play and one of the only teams in the league to get all of its games in uh, in, com- in the conference schedule. Strong year. Now again, didn't win the regular season title. But they weren't supposed to be ahead of UCLA this year. Didn't finish second. Well, they weren't supposed to be ahead of Washington this year. From the preseason, they were behind those teams. And for that matter, they're behind Arizona. And by the end of the season, they were on the level or behind those teams. But when they competed with them, they competed dang hard against UCLA, against Arizona. And yeah, they played at Washington, and that was a tougher weekend for them, for sure. Took one of three. It was the non-conference game of the four games. But grand scheme of things against the best competition in the league it wasn't like they didn't hold their own they more than held their own and that gave them the opportunity on selection sunday to potentially earn the opportunity to host a regional obviously we know they didn't and one of the main contributing factors was not because their league schedule not because of their league record anybody could say well win more games and get seated better yeah that could be said for anyone in any sport. Ultimately, it was because of the non-conference schedule. That's what it came down to. And obviously, we chronicled that at the time and uh, spoke with the NCAA Softball Selection Committee Chair, Matt Larson, who's also the Athletic Director of North Dakota State, about the whole thought process and seating and 
why were they seated where they were and they were a two seed up against uh, a 12 seed in Texas. So that would mean they were the true 21 and that they weren't actually the true 21 necessarily on an S curve. So again, we went through all the the factors. We're not going to go through every which thing again to the season as a whole for Brooke Inez to be an all American caliber pitcher. Not again, not a surprise. She'd done so before in her career, but she didn't have a chance to go through the Pac-12 in 2020. You didn't know for sure against the best competition. But that's why she came to Oregon, to play against the best and prove herself against the best on a weekend-to-weekend basis. And she had a tremendous season. Tremendous season. Haley Cruz, to cap her career in the manner in which she did. Absolutely outstanding. Only player in program history to lead Oregon softball and hitting for four straight seasons. Does it come with a caveat because of the fifth year of eligibility and whatnot? Yeah, sure. Maybe. But if it was something that was so easy to accomplish anywhere else, it would happen more often. It doesn't. Not at Oregon and not really just about anywhere at the top-tier programs in college softball. And there has obviously been some tremendous players in that sport this year and many years in the past at all kinds of programs. Being a team's leading hitter for four straight years, something not just to be celebrated, something to be, that that's iconic, that's incredible. And to not just lead them in hitting, but lead in almost every statistical category. And to do so in contributions and measurable statistics on the field, but to do so many of the things that Haley did off the field uh, and to be the leader that she was for that program for not just this season, not just the 2020 season, but throughout, obviously, the 2019 season when everything was going awry. Uh, Tremendous player, uh, tremendous athlete, but a a tremendous young person who has had a lasting impact on that program and certainly will be brutally difficult for Oregon softball to replace, not just in terms of statistical contributions, but in so many other ways. Now, again, hey, that's that's part of college sport. They're going to have to replace some great players. But that will be a massive challenge. That that's not you know there is no overstating it. Uh, as challenging as it was going to be for women's basketball to replace Sabrina. All right, Haley may not be all time greatest in NCAA softball history at that level, but she was an All American, and in program history, she is on a very short list. When you start looking at certain statistical accomplishments. Uh, you start considering longevity of career and production throughout the course of her career and the like. Uh, again, if someone who's in rarefied air, and it will be difficult, very difficult and challenging to replace her. But that will be one of the many tasks at hand uh, for Oregon softball here this offseason. But again, she certainly wasn't alone, uh, and Brooke Inez was not alone either. They just happened to be the two All-Americans on the team. But Allie Bunker had a great season. Uh, Tara McGowan, a really, really good year, uh, both behind the plate where she was outstanding uh, on a regular basis and playing and starting 53 games in that regard. Uh, and I believe 
all but maybe a handful uh, from behind the plate. So really a, a tremendous year there for her. Certainly a lot to build on uh, heading into next year. And Hannah Delgado being a tremendous freshman uh, and playing in the outfield when she was a, an infielder by trade and being very productive as a young player. Obviously, Alyssa Brito provided a lot as well. It was uh, all Pac-12 defensively and on the all-freshman team and whatnot. And she has uh, chosen to enter the transfer portal and move on. So she'll be a difficult player to replace for them. We'll see how the roster comes together uh, in terms of any transfers who come in this offseason and whatnot. Obviously, they've also signed a significant number of players as well. So we'll see what the new roster looks like uh, in the months ahead. But again, a team that it was expected to reach the postseason. It was expected to have a nice run. It did. It lived up to it. And it capped off with an NCAA regional at Texas where obviously a lot of things come full circle with that matchup. And it was, on the final night, a tremendous display of college softball where they forced the deciding game against Texas and they gave themselves a shot to win it at the end. And they come up just short. Well, not not everything's going to go your way every time in sport. That's the way it goes. But a team who certainly, you know, talk about fight and tenacity and metal. A team who had really lived that a lot of times throughout the course of the year. Had certainly come back many times early in games. And responded if they got down early in games many times had the walk-off win over Arizona when they were being not just no hit, but it was a perfect game through six innings, and they're down one nothing. <laughs> At that point, they're losing because of a solo home run. And to completely flip the script at home and snap a, at that point, 44-game, I think it was, losing streak when trailing after six innings, get that during the regular season. Again, a team who showed a lot of metal and a lot of fight throughout the year. Showed it as well in the postseason. All right, yeah, it stinks to lose in a regional. You can argue about whether or not they should have been hosting a regional in the first place. You can argue whether or not they should have been matched up with Texas. All right, well, it's done, though. And the season as a whole, again, still successful. Whether or not they hosted or made it to a super was only going to further enhance what was already successful. And in terms of outlook going forward, I say, they obviously have a lot to replace, both in losing Haley, losing Samaria Diaz, losing Shea Bowden, losing Alyssa Brito to the transfer portal. But, again, that's part of the challenge of sport, and we'll see how that roster comes together throughout the course of the offseason. And that brings us, lastly, for the purposes of our conversation, to baseball and another team who just had so much that had to be sorted out on the fly. And Mark Wazikowski had talked about how in the fall, how challenging it was for everybody. Again, for I'm not saying that Oregon was necessarily wildly different than a lot of teams in a lot of places, especially in the Pac-12. But when you can't even really go through anything by way of base running uh, in the fall, because of in a, in the truest sense, and anything game-like in the fall. That's that's brutal. 
for a second-year coaching staff whose first season was interrupted as it was, and then to have to try and prepare when fall ball was as limited as it was by way of practice. Then the season gets off to a start, and you have a COVID pause before anything even gets underway. And players who weren't available or fully available in the opening weekend of the season at the end of February when they split the series with Seattle. Games that ultimately hurt them in terms of RPI by the end of the year, but ultimately didn't obviously cost them too dearly, but it quite honestly may have co- may have cost them by way of seeding uh, for the NCAA tournament, but did not change the fact that they were going to host a regional regardless. Uh, but those two losses to Seattle, mathematically speaking, actually mattered quite a bit uh, when it came to Selection Monday. Having said that, to start off the year, all right, Jovan wasn't in the lineup. Alstrom wasn't available that first weekend. Walker and Kafka were limited by way of pitch count that first weekend. But to turn around, sweep UC Santa Barbara. Take two of three against Oregon State. Take two of three against Arizona State. And all of a sudden, you see this team starting to get off to a real nice start. Real nice start. And yeah, it was happening admittedly during the course of the NCAA tournament in men's and women's college basketball. So, you know, attention is kind of spread out where they're winning, but they're winning on the road at Corvallis. And again, attendance was virtually non-existent. All right, they win against Arizona State, but that's during the NCAA tournament. They lose two of three at Arizona late in March. Then there's the New Mexico State series where... Obviously, it's an opponent that you can look past a bit. But once they got into April, and it was the home sweep over Oregon State, so it's taken five of six on the season against Oregon State, and taking two of three against USC, taking two of three against UCLA, to say nothing of the non-conference games. Huge month of April for Oregon baseball to where that just further legitimized what was already a really nice start to the year. Those series, those Pac-12 series of Oregon State, USC, UCLA, winning and winning in the manner in which they did, in particular against UCLA and Oregon State, that truly legitimized this Ducks baseball team this year. All right, yeah, the, the month ended and, and, and crossed over into May with, all right, you lose two of three at Washington State. Not great by any stretch of the imagination. Having said that, tough place to play. Certain conditions are a challenge. Everybody's going to have a hiccup here or there. Ultimately, doesn't cause everything to go awry by any stretch. And because they had played the toughest teams in the league already, By the time they got into May, it was truly a matter of taking care of business against the weaker opponents in the league, Washington and Utah, and they did that, and they did that handily. So when they swept those series, that's exactly what was supposed to happen. And to close out with a win over Gonzaga, that meant a lot mathematically. All right, yes, losing two of three to Stanford was tough, but those three games, that was a spectacular series. 
in the regular season, final home series. Yeah, losing two or three is tough. Let, you know, let's not kid ourselves. Stanford is also a team that has now made it to Omaha for the College World Series. Let's not forget. So, yes, that may have been tough nearly a month ago if you were there at PK Park to, you know, to see losses in two or three games. But those were three unbelievably competitive games and really well played. And as I say, in the end, the Cardinal end up making it back to Omaha for the first time in a while. I don't think that takes, you know, that, that, that should just further emphasize just how good this team was this year. And remarkable in that, and I certainly tried to capture it uh, throughout the course of the year and, and later in the year as we got into the postseason, that this team, under Mark Wasikowski and his staff, it wasn't like that in two years there had been this astronomical level of roster turnover and they brought in a dozen transfers that the starting lineup had been completely turned on its head, that two or even all three weekend pitchers were all new guys. None of that was true. Of course, there were changes to the lineup. But the players who were carrying the Ducks this season were players who were here before, from Kenyon Yovan and Gabe Matthews, two of the three five-year players on the team along with Nico Telesche, to Alstrom, Kafka, and Walker. All three were here in 2019. Colby Summers taking off and being one of the best closers in the Pac-12 throughout the course of the regular season. Aaron Zavala just absolutely skyrocketing at the plate to turn into the Pac-12 player of the year. Tremendous player development. No, I mean, incredible, really. Incredible player development by Mark Wasikowski and his staff over the past two years, but especially this season when you got to see it in Pac-12 play, when you got to see it against the best competition, and obviously as they made it to the postseason, having the opportunity to host an NCAA regional. And yeah, all right, they get off to a 2-0 start, and you match up with LSU, and one of, the, if, one of if not the top college baseball program in, in the country who didn't have as strong a year as they're necessarily used to or accustomed to, but still a strong year nevertheless. And competitive games that go against you. Yeah, disappointing in that, obviously, on the deciding game on the winner-take-all Monday season finale, disappointing to be up a run and see it go against you, for sure. Really disappointing. That is a tough way to go down. No way around it. But the other team's trying, too. And yeah, we're not going to revisit and relitigate the balk and every which other thing. Ultimately, as I wrote at the time, it had nothing to do with the runner at first base. And basically, if you need a ton of explanation in terms of how that play went down and whatnot, then you can find and learn some of the more detailed nuances of the game of baseball at your leisure but 
it had nothing to do with the runner at first base. And they were trying to get outs any which way they could. And it's a highly advantageous situation for LSU that they put themselves in. Oregon is scratching and clawing to find any way to create outs and get out of that inning and either hold on to a lead or keep the game tied. All right, it didn't work. But they went down trying. And then in the ninth, again, just a softball fought to the end and gave themselves a chance to come back against Texas. Baseball did the same thing. They gave themselves a chance. They got any which kind of means to get on base. Uh, uh, Slow rolling infield singles, you name it. They went to the end. Went to the very bitter end. All right, yeah, you lose at home in a regional, and that stinks. When you start off 2-0 and and you have a chance to move on to a super. Yeah, that's difficult. Having said that, they would have been matched up at Tennessee, and Tennessee makes it past LSU and looks like a unbelievably talented team headed to the College World Series, so who knows what would have happened in that matchup anyway. Does not take away at all from what was not just a great season, one of the best turnaround seasons in all of college baseball this year. And we'll see as the offseason goes on, we talk about roster composition. Telashay and Matthews absolutely moving on. They're out of eligibility. Jovan, based on his postgame reaction and how long he spent taking in the scene at PK Park to the final game would certainly lead one to believe that that was his last game at Oregon. He has eligibility remaining if he chooses to utilize it. Time will tell. But he certainly was taking it in as though that was the end. And again, he's a fifth-year player. To ask him to come back for his sixth year uh, would be probably asking a bit, a bit much, to be honest. But we'll see. And then in terms of all the other players who are draft eligible and what's going to happen in the draft next month and the like, way to uh, that is beyond, that is beyond me to start to uh, speculate into what'll happen in a twenty round MLB draft. Who's projected to go where? Uh, I, I'm certainly under no stretch of the imagination. Uh, a Major League Baseball draft uh, guru, analyst, prognosticator. Uh, no, I, I I can't even begin to uh, weigh into that uh, with any degree of uh, expertise. So we'll see who ends up getting picked, when they're picked, who has options from the Major League side of things. And even if they do get picked, who may choose to return. And for the equivalency sports, the scholarship crunch that is coming up in the upcoming recruiting classes is even more significant of a challenge than what's happening in football because even though the numbers in in gross number are obviously less than 85, what, what football has to deal with, it is still going to be a challenge for baseball and softball. Uh, because they're going to be the first ones to deal with it. And equivalency, uh, you're not on, like I say, you're overwhelmingly, players are not on full rides. So 
trying to work around uh, and work within the scholarship limitations that you're under and preserve the roster that you do have when you have the opportunity to do so uh, while still bringing in the players who you've signed and the players who you hope to sign uh, in the near future. Not going to be easy for anybody, to be clear. I'm speaking in very broad generalities there. So, Overall, again, a year that was incredibly successful for Oregon Athletics, where many of these teams, as we've recapped here, make it to postseason, have strong years, many individual seasons that are either all Pac-12 or all-American years. A strong year up, up and down for the entire department. And... In terms of the challenges going ahead and what faces them going ahead, whether in terms of individual teams and roster composition and the like, that's one thing. In terms of financially, what every single athletic department in the country is facing after this incredibly difficult year from a financial standpoint. Hey, just as they manage to get through this year, they'll all they'll make it. They'll figure it out. I'm not telling you it's going to be easy. Uh, I'm glad I'm not going to be be the one to make some of the decisions because I know many of these decisions are not going to be easy. But in terms of the outlook going forward for many of Oregon sports, including most of the teams that we recapped here today, really positive outlook. Uh, and I'm I'm not exactly somebody who uh, sees everything through you know rose colored glasses and uh, rays of sunshine. If it weren't that way, I believe me, I'd be the first to say it. This is a program who achieved a lot this year uh, and has a lot to be proud of uh, for what they achieved on whatever their field of play and competition was. Individually, collectively, a really strong year for this department and for many of the teams and individuals who we mentioned. So praiseworthy, commendable, uh, and a congrats to many of them uh, because this was obviously – a brutally difficult year for most everybody to get through, including in the sports realm, including in the college sports realm, and many, many accomplishments uh, were achieved and had. So much to be celebrated there. With that, we move into the off season, and uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break on the podcast uh, in order to recharge a little bit, and we'll get back to you leading into fall camp and the football season, and certainly look forward to all those things that we, we've discussed already in terms of, all oh, looking ahead to next year and rosters and competition and schedules and all that. Yes, looking forward to getting into all that at length on a regular basis as we all return and certainly hope to return to a full normal come the fall. So with that, it's James Creppy with the Oregonian and Oregon Live signing off on the 2020-21 Oregon Sports Recap.